Hey everyone, this year the talk is in partnership with Stella's Place. We are attempting to raise at the $5,500, which will be going towards Stella's Place's virtual counseling sessions. You can go to our Instagram page and find the link in the bio to help donate there. We've already got off to a really great start, thanks to everyone who's donated early on in the get-going. And of course, if we hit that mark, Dakota and I will be doing a little polar bear dip in early March. So you're not going to want to miss that. And as always, if you want to help support our brand while supporting Stella's Place, hit the website at the55.ca. It's the place to be. Go to the store. We have dry fit t-shirts, hats, masks, the proceeds, all of which go towards Stella's Place as well. And today's guest is from Stella's Place. So all kinds of Stella's Place content coming at you. Enjoy the show. Hey, what's going on, everybody? My name is Asante Houghton from Stella's Place, Peer Development and Training Manager, and you're listening to At The 55. Hello and welcome to At The 55, your home for OUA football. Today, we're back with another installment of The Talk, our conversation interview show about mental health in and around sports and specifically with what we do here, the game of football. Before I introduce today's guest, just a reminder, if you missed the first episode we put out with... Mr. Dakota Vine, firstly, how disrespectful uh, for Mr. Vine there. But secondly, you may have missed that part of our initiative this year in doing the talk is we're doing a fundraiser to raise money for Stella's Place, an organization that we've been you know, lucky enough to be able to support in the last few years. And so we are privileged to have with us on today's episode uh, a member from Stella's Place in charge of, correct me if I'm wrong, peer development and training management Asante Houghton. Asante, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing really good, man. How are you guys doing? Uh, excellent, excellent. It's always a pleasure and a privilege to have uh, people like yourself being able to come on our show and talk about uh, anything and everything, and especially when it comes to mental health. Um, it's it's incredible. So well, let's let's start, Asante, with your right. story, your journey, kind of wanting to work in the field of mental health and what brought you to Stella's Place. You know, it, it's funny because... Uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people like grow up thinking they're going to work in mental health. You know, usually what happens is, you know, some experience of your life personally to a family member, friend, something, you know, motivates you to want to get involved. And I think that's true for me as well. Uh, you know, as a kid, you know, I was really into sports and, and technology and artistic things. Right. So, um, you know, naturally, you know, you kind of grow up like, hey, I want to be a professional athlete or, you know, for me, it was really I want to be uh, an animator or uh, I wanted to work in tech or do something like that. And as I got older, I thought, oh, what about sports journalism? Because it's sports and creativity at the same time. Um, and, and, you know, those paths didn't end up coming to fruition for me. Um, a lot of and a lot of it was because. Uh, of the experiences I had in my life. And, you know, when, when I became a teenager, when I was around 14, 15, I started to experience depression and anxiety pretty, you know, it was pretty serious. And uh, that was also happening at the same time uh, where my mom was, you know, she got sick when I was a teenager. And um, when I was actually around 14 or 15 years old, and then, you know, she had her battle for several years. And uh, in a lot of ways, I was kind of her caretaker um, while also while also trying to take care of myself. But, you know, the consequence of that is that I didn't really get to have like your typical teenage life, you know, um, which was, I think, really hard for me. And, you know, it, it's still something you kind of look back on and you're like, you know, I wish it was a little bit different. But, um, you know, such is life. And but. I guess anyways, it was at that point really 
especially as I got to my late teens, early 20s, where I started to think a lot more about mental health because um, it became necessary for me to think about it as that was part of my journey. And, you know, then, you know, I, I just happened to start taking some courses by accident at, at the university and I became really interested in this thing. And I thought, you know, one, maybe if I learn this stuff, I can help figure out like what's going on in my family and in my own life. Uh, but two, uh, you know, maybe I can go out there and help others so that, you know, me at 16 years old doesn't happen to a bunch of other kids. So that, that's kind of what motivated me. Well, it, that's an that's an incredible story, Asante. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, and, you know, before we actually get into maybe how you got into working with Stella's Place then and um, you being able to tell us, you know, all the incredible things Stella's Place is doing, you know, you, you touched on in there talking about having to, to care for your mom at such a young age. And in the conversation with mental health, a, a, a saying or, or just a turn of phrase that I think is so impactful and something I don't think I realized until recently is about you, you really have to it it can be hard to care for others or to give to others if you're not doing the steps to to take self-care and, and really set yourself up for success so going back to you at 16 years old you know that I can only imagine how challenging that must have been yeah. looking back on that time do you think there were were you in a position as far as your own mental health, do you think, to, to be able to, to really help out? Or, or just how does that interaction between your own mental health and then being able to help someone else out in their journey interact? You know, it's, it's interesting you say that because I, I think that there's different kinds of help. And so I could like do things for others if it was like a task. You know what I mean? But if it came to like supporting someone through something, to think about something, advice, you know, that kind of stuff at that time of my life I had literally zero capacity to do any of that I couldn't really you know see outside of myself um and what was happening in you know the the four walls of my home so to speak and so like that actually made it really difficult for me to connect with other people you know at that time of my life because I was so just kind of insulated in my own problems um that I just in a, in a lot of ways, wasn't even really interested in connecting with other people because I didn't want to deal with more than what was already on my plate, which felt like so much, you know what I mean? But the flip side is, of course, you're a teenager, you know, you want to have the big social group and go out and do all these different things that, you know, I just didn't really do that much of that. Um, and a lot of that was that, you know, I was trying to take care of myself and my mom and, um, and yeah, again, you know, that's hard, um, but it was also a thing that I felt was necessary uh, at the time uh, for, for me. And, but, you know, it, it is true what they say that, you know, you, you gotta get yourself in in a good place before you can really support others. Um, you know, even me as a professional today, doesn't mean that like I'm good all the time, you know? So if I'm in a place where I can't support someone adequately because I'm going with my own stuff, luckily, I have a team of others I can lean on and say, hey, you know, I really can't manage this one right now for, you know, this week or next week or whatever. And, you know, can you take this over for, you know, some time until I can get back to where I need to be? And, you know, they might do the same. And so it's it's, it's really just kind of having the understanding of what your capacity is and what you're capable of. Absolutely. And that team you, you mentioned is so vital whether it's family, friends, however you form that. And you mentioned growing up and, and being involved in sports. And, and obviously that that's our whole 
thing we, we we talk about here and for so many i'll speak for myself as well as a as a kid and still to this day being able to whether it's working out or, or whatever playing some pickup basketball is in many ways as as, as therapeutic as, as anything else in my life i can turn to which you know not to go down a rabbit hole is one of the things with during the pandemic has been so difficult but for you as a young kid having sports as a, an outlet how, how how big was that it, it was absolutely huge there, there i don't think there was anything in the world i loved more than sports when i was a kid uh, i was just obsessed with it and you know I, th- I think part of that was like I had older brothers who were into sports and they were a lot older than me. They were seven, eight years older than me. So I was like just brought into this culture of like sports is everything. And, you know, so, you know, the first sport I really fell in love with was baseball. Uh, and because uh, and I, I grew up around the, you know, the World Series seasons in Toronto. Right. So, I mean, you know, it was it was the Joe Carter years. And so for me that I just had that heavy influence and, you know, everybody wanted to be Roberto Alomar and kind of make that jumping double play kind of thing. Um, and, and then, you know, uh, my, one of my brothers, he was a big Cowboys fan. So then I got into being a Cowboys fan still am, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> you know? um, uh, and, you know, so uh, that's, but again, you know, Cowboys were, they were really good back then, right? You know, the, the Jimmy Johnson years, right? So, um, so that was a big thing. I mean, and then of course the Leafs were good back. So, I mean, <laughs> there was a lot of good teams uh, back then, right? I mean, then, you know, we got the Raptors a little bit later and I mean, it took them a while, but they finally, you know, got over the hill. Um, but I mean, for me, I mean, I, I'm the kind of person where I don't just like to watch. I like to participate in things. Um, so even like, I don't really like play sports video games. Cause for me, I just feel like it's, it's like cheapening the experience of actually playing the sport. Um, you know, so, uh, I, I just, you know, I'd watch all these guys on TV who are like my idols. And I just, I was like, I want to be like them, you know, started batting left because of Ken Griffey and like developed an uppercut swing, you know, which probably didn't help my actual <laughs> baseball skills, but, um, you know, as, as a result, and, you know, so it's that kind of thing. Um, and, and, you know, so I, I got really into it and I was just playing sports every day. Um, it's like my, my routine was, you know, go to school, you know, come home for a bit, then go out with my friends until it gets dark. We're just playing sports every day. It didn't matter what sport, you know, there's a lot of baseball, a lot of soccer, a lot of road hockey, you know, basketball as well. And just, just every day, every day. And, you know, depending on the season, we change the sport, you know, it was just every day. Um, but, you know, that was me as a kid and I was really into it. And, um, you know, I just I was just naturally pretty good at sports for whatever reason. You know, I wasn't like the most like elite, elite athlete, um, but I was I was, you know, I, I was good at everything to some extent. Um, and then, you know, when I got to high school, that, that's actually when I got interested in basketball was when I got to high school. Before then, I was not actually that's probably like of the big four that was actually probably on the bottom of my list. Um, and uh, but, you know they saw me, I was like this tall athletic black kid. So they're like, you're going to play basketball now. <laughs> and it's like, all right, I guess that's what's going to happen. Um, but um, when I got to high school, basketball really did become an outlet for me. And, you know, one of the things about basketball is you could do it by yourself. Um, so, you know, there are times where I just be not where I need, where, where I wanted to be in terms of my emotional or mental health and, I would just go on the court and I'm just shooting free throws for hours, just, just, you know, until my legs are aching, I'm, I'm taking jumpers and, um, 
that was really therapeutic for me. Uh, it was it was just a place for me to to get away, even as I got to university and stuff like that. And I, I would always just go play some pickup, and for those couple hours, nothing else existed. You know, I, I think that's a very a story that a lot of people, myself included, can resonate with. Like a lot of those themes, even the theme of you talking about kind of being recruited to play basketball on more superficial levels. I can speak for a lot of husky grade eights out there who went to high school not wanting to play football. A coach yeah. at some point looked at you and said, "Hey, you know what? You could probably play offensive line, defensive line. So <laughs> similar but different position." You know, Asante, Asante, a really interesting thing that's come up in a lot of interviews we've done with with athletes in, in sort of how they've adjusted and moving on to different parts of their life. We did a series of interviews uh, about a year and a half ago. I've, time doesn't really make sense anymore um, about sort of that, that whole thing of the life after football and just how people adjust with it because so much of your identity gets wrapped up in the sport and then when you lose that. But and a lot of the stories people were telling of sort of what they moved on to, a lot of them kept that a lot of the lessons and oh, yeah. mentalities from sports in whatever they went into, even if it was non-sports related. So I'm, I'm curious to now sort of use that to sort of jump into your time with Stella's Place and sort of a bit of how you got there. Some of the, you know, as we were mentioning beforehand with the funds we're raising, it's going towards the virtual counseling. But then I'm also curious with the sports connection. Mm-hmm. Do you do you incorporate some of that mentality or some of those ideas into the work that you do working at Stella's Place and being an advocate for mental health? Oh, 100 percent. I mean, anybody who spends any time around me knows that I just drop sports analogies all the time <laughs> I just, to, to an extent that like people are annoyed by the amount of sports analogies I drop. But um, but I, I find honestly, I find that if you've played a team sport or even an individual sport, if you if you've played before like you understand kind of just a lot about people dynamics you know and because in order to be good at a sport you need to understand how other people work like for me when I was playing sports you know I was like my approach to to the sport was always psychological and uh, and always uh from a level of like intelligence you know like I became good at basketball not because I was the best shooter or the best person at dribbling the basketball was because I could read what the opponent was thinking and what they wanted to do. Right. Because you just, if you observe, uh, you know, the tendencies of, of your opponent, then you, you kind of know, um, is this someone who's going to be extra aggressive defending me? Okay. If that's the case, then I'm just going to, I'm going to leave the ball out here and make it look like I don't have control of it. And then, you know, they're going to try to grab it. And then, you know, I go, I go to the rim and I make a play. Right. Um, so, you know, it, there's the, those things on, on that level in terms of power of like observation and kind of taking what is, you know, what, what is in front of us and being able to see what's in front of us. But on a greater level, I think there's this, you know, for me, there's so many lessons about teamwork and, and culture and, and how to develop confidence because, you know, if you've played a sport, you know that the mental game is kind of what separates good from great. And, you know, if, if you're not writing, like I remember in grade 11, I was just not good at like some, it's, I was just an awful player in grade 11 and it was all in my head. And it was, you know, I just had like a bad stretch and I just couldn't get it out of my head. You know, it's like I had the yips, like for, for that. it was really bad. And and then, you know, I, I came back in grade 12 and I had a coach who had played some pro basketball in Spain and, you know, he's coming back and, you know, 
just essentially he had a knee injury that really impacted his career. So he's coming back to, to do some stuff here. And, you know, he essentially instilled this sense of confidence in me. And I went from being this awful basketball player to being the, uh, the athlete of the year in my school. Like it was a tremendous leap where, you know, people went from not passing me the ball to being like, here, Asante, do something with it. And like, you know, figure it out. Um, and, and all it was for me was confidence. You know, and, and, you know, the moment that that coach gave me the confidence in myself that I could do this thing, I, I, I had a little bit of success. And then I, I looked at it and said, like, whoa, I had some success at this. And then I started to invest in it. I started to work out. I started to practice more. I started to study film, you know, and then I became really good really quickly. Um, if maybe if I, had, if I had had that confidence from day one, who knows how far I would have gone in any sport, really. Right. Um, and so when I approached when I approach like team building as a manager, for me, it's about building confidence in the folks that I work with. Um, because if they're not confident in their abilities and what they can do, they're not going to perform same way as on the, the, the field, the court, the ice, whatever, you know, that's, that's just how it is. Um, so that's a huge piece for me is, and, and, but then you also learn how to help like ladder people up, you know, it's, it's like, because, I mean, inevitably, if you're in sports, you've probably coached it on some level. Um, even if most of what you did was playing, you probably had a little brother or a little cousin or something, and you watch them at the park, and you're trying to figure, help them figure it out. And so in doing that kind of stuff and also being on the receiving end of that, you realize that, you know, talent is something that a lot of times is largely acquired through practice and that, you know, incremental development of, of just extending into – the discomfort of doing something that is just a little bit farther than what you're capable of. And then knowing that that's going to be a frustrating process and knowing that it's going to suck and you're going to feel bad because you feel like I'm not getting it. And then you do get it. And then, you know, you're ready to move to the next level. And that, that's just kind of how I approach like coaching up like my teams that I work with, even in mental health, you know? So it's, I think it all just aligns so easily for me. I mean, there's there's so many great things there that you touched on. I, I mean, just the aspect of kind of the that stepping into that unknown in sports or in anything in life and the anxiety that brings and and being able to have that confidence, as you said, to embrace that uncertainty with just full confidence that, you know, things will work out as they as you know, as they should and the work preceding it will will sort of guide you. And you touched on as well the difference between good and great coming down to that mental game. Something that I know Dakota's touched on in, in other um, episodes we've done is that in, in so many sticking with football in university programs and in the pros as well, you know, you, you see uh, a physiotherapist for injuries, you see you have a personal trainer to build up your body, but then oftentimes mm-hmm. that piece on whether it's building up your mental, I, I, I don't know how to frame it necessarily, but being able to sort of take care of your mind and that other sort of component of the game often gets left by the wayside so moving, oh, oh sorry yeah. you know yeah i guess what i was going to say about that is like you know and i don't say this to brag but you know i was a pretty clutch player like, <laughs> like it's just like how it was you know like even when i was a bad player i was just i was so competitive and my drive to win was so much that like i would just start like hyper focusing and performing um, but you know, there was this one moment in, in my high school basketball career where I was at the line to shoot clutch free throws 
and there was a bunch of drama happening in the game. So I had like four consecutive free throws because there was technical fouls and all this stuff. So anyway, um, and I missed the first one. And then I had to just gather myself and say, listen, like the reason I missed the first one is because I was scared of missing it. And then something switched in my head and I said, I'm not afraid. I went from being afraid of the, 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 the failure to thinking that I must succeed. And then I started draining those free throws. And I was always like my, my approach at the end of games is not, I would actually take more risks at the end of games than, than I would at any other part of games because I would just do what I felt was necessary to, to get the W. Um, you know, I got the W sometimes, sometimes I didn't, but, but, um, but for me, it was, I would, I mean, obviously there's no stats to back this up, but I would say that my success rate at the end of games, whether it was soccer, baseball, whatever, like I was great at hitting on two strikes too, like, you know, and two outs. But the the thing was that it, it, I wasn't thinking about the failure. I was thinking about the success. And, and I think that a lot of people, like, again, when you coach, you kind of see that, you know, people kind of clam up at the end because they're afraid to make a mistake, right? But then you see the the, the, the kids who succeed, they succeed because they're – they, the, their mentality isn't, I'm afraid to make a mistake. Their mentality is, I am going to do what I can to succeed, right? Um, and, you know, and, and I think I just kind of, I try to take that into the world as a lesson. Um, and, and I think that when we talk about mental health recovery, there's so many risks and unknowns and uncertainties involved in that journey that it's, that, being afraid of not succeeding can be paralyzing the same way it's paralyzing when you see it happen in sports. Right. Um, so it's about instilling that sense of you can succeed and you must succeed. And what must you do to achieve that? Right. So for me, I think that's really important. I mean that the, that paralysis by analysis you, you described there, once again, it's something that I know I've encountered in sports and in all walks of life. You also seemingly explained mama mentality, um, better than I think anyone has in your answer. There, Cause I think that's all about, that's all what the mama mentality is, is about. It is just knowing that, yeah, hey, no, take the just, shot. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've missed, but you know, I've made more, well, I don't know if I've actually made more than I missed, but it feels <laughs> like it, you know, <laughs> take the shots you make them sometimes right hey even if you didn't that's the attitude you just need to believe in right yeah and and to be honest i mean while i i can say i've made you know a lot of clutch shots or clutch goals or that kind of thing clutch hits i've in terms of like win loss performance i've definitely lost way more than i've won you know um but you know some what you learn from both the wins and the losses is that you are going to lose you're not like even when you're good you're still going to lose, right? Um, unless, of course, you know, you're a pro-level athlete as a kid. Those kids don't really lose much, but, but every, the rest of us, you know. Um, but, you know, what you also learn from the winning, especially when you win the ones that you're not supposed to, and those are the best wins, the, the ones where you, you win where no one expected you to. And what you learn from that is that in life, even when everything seems bleak, there is a way to succeed, right? So like now as like a parent and a coach, I'm always say, no, an, an, an analogy I use is you stay in the game until the buzzer goes, right? And, you know, if you're thinking about like an actual game that works, but I think about that in terms of, 
you know, um, you're, you're working on a project, then, you know, it's not taking off, you know, you, you stay in the game until the buzzer goes because you still might win. Um, if, if you keep playing hard, so to speak, or, you know, the same thing with your mental health. Like for me, it took me eight years to improve. Right. And, but I stayed in the game, you know, and that's why I was able to succeed and actually find some recovery in my life. I could have quit after, you know, three, four or five years of struggling with this thing really hard and really bad, but I didn't because I just, you know, for me, and, and this is where sports comes in again. It's like one of, you know, obviously like most kids who grew up in the nineties, one of my favorite players was Michael Jordan, but my actual absolute favorite player was Isaiah Thomas in, in basketball. And he was the small guy. He was undersized, he was the underdog. And, you know, but he would always, you know, persevere. There was a sense of resilience with him and perseverance that I saw. And I said, I want to be like that as a person. Um, and, and then I try to really instill that in those that I support and work with. And I, I love to tell stories about people who have overcome seemingly insurmountable challenges because those stories are what give people hope is because when you are in the depth of your mental health challenges, it can seem like there's no way out and nothing you do because you've probably been trying to do things for years nothing you do is going to work. But then you hear the story of someone who did battle for 10, 15 years and they found a way out. And then that says to you, maybe I can too. So it's worth it to keep going and to keep trying. Absolutely. Um, and moving towards Stella's place a little bit, one of the great things about the organization is that it specifically provides resources for members of the BIPOC community. And mm -hmm. we had a guest in an interview that'll be airing after this one who talked about how as a as a member of the BIPOC community that it can feel uncomfortable if she's searching out searching out someone to speak with mm -hmm. for counseling or therapy but when that person just frankly doesn't look like you and, and that mm -hmm. idea of representation and going into an environment where you're going to be so vulnerable with things that might be bothering you or whatever can you speak on both what Stella's Place offers as far as those resources, but then also that importance of uh, whether it's representation or sort of how that factors in and, and being able to let yourself be so vulnerable with another human being? Yeah, you know, I, I think I'll address the second part first. Uh, you know, that was a challenge for me, actually, too. You know, I remember uh, one of the first times I sought out therapy, I was about 16, 16-ish, and you know, I went to the therapist's office and I looked around and I saw all the therapists and none of them looked like me. And, you know, and it wasn't that they all looked like really nice people, to be honest. They, they looked, they looked like, like people I could talk to in, in some ways, but you know, a lot of what I was dealing with at that age was around identity and racism. Um, because, you know, I was living in the projects and, you know, they were over-policed and me, even though I was a good kid and didn't really get in trouble and, you know, I was, I was mostly focused on school and sports. That was all I really did, you know, and, and, you know, but I would still get stopped by police all the time. You know, they're always kind of stopping me and asking where I'm going, you know, who are the people I'm with? Where do you live? It was just constant. Um, it happened so often. Right. And, and, you know, it's those things, but then also like, you know, I'm, 
I'm an immigrant. I was born in Jamaica. I came to Toronto when I was two years old. Um, also, you know, Toronto, when I was growing up in the 90s, was not nearly as diverse as it is now. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of just issues for me in terms of like identity and figuring out like who am I in terms of being a Canadian and being a Jamaican and, and you know, kind of just growing up in these different social milieus, so to speak, uh, you know, because like, you know, different, some environments are surrounded by people who look like me and then in other environments are surrounded by nobody who looks like me um, because of both sports and academics, right? Um, and so because of that, like, I, I was probably just uh, socializing in like these different ways. So I was different than a lot of what other people expected from like a black kid at that time, you know? So I, I, and, and no one really actually made fun of me or bothered me about it, but I knew that was true. And so for me, it was kind of like, there was that challenge of figuring out like who you are and where do you fit? Because, you know, part of, you know, my experience as a black person is having so much like pride in yourself that, you know, the only people you like spend your time with is people who are from your community. Uh, but that wasn't how I was. I was just like, hey, if you're cool with me, I'm cool with you. And that's that's just and I'm still that way to this day, you know. Um, but at that time, it was just it was, you know, everyone I was like all of my friends and like family and whatever who are black, like th their whole world was black. You know, and I was the kind of the outlier where I was kind of delving into all these different spaces just because I was a curious kid who liked to do a lot of different things. Um, and I wouldn't really let anybody's opinion stop me from doing the thing I wanted to do because like, it's whatever, like I'm here to live this, I share the world with everybody, right? Um, so, um, but you know, the identity piece was, was huge and, and also of course the racism piece. And so I felt like if I didn't have a therapist who could understand those things that you know maybe it, i wouldn't be able to open up to them or i wouldn't get as much out of it as i needed to get out of it and you know i, I think with a lot of young people uh that that is true in terms of how they perceive it to be um you know uh, again as, as i got older i think that you know those things are true definitely to an extent but i, I don't think that disqualifies you know some other therapists who maybe don't belong to your community from being able to help you you know um i, I think that you know that also is a thing that, you know, can work as well. Um, again, speaking from my own experience, right? So, um, but, you know, in terms of Stella's place, I, I think that, you know, when I got there, one of the things I really tried to talk about was diversity and, and how are we addressing the diversity in terms of uh, the population of our city, you know, um, you know, and I think Stella's place, uh, you know, has really taken up the mantle in, in trying to figure that out. And, you know, if, uh, if you were to look at our, our staff from four or five years ago um, and look at our staff now, it's, it's like two completely different pictures. Um, and then you're starting to see that trickle down to the participants as, you know, we're trying to create more programming uh, for essentially for, you know, just the non-white majority. Right. So um, now. Um, <clears throat> what we what we got going on we have we have a, a BIPOC DBT group um, which is really cool um, I don't actually know if anybody else is doing this so DBT is is um, it's a uh, it stands for what dialect dialectical behavioral therapy and the idea is uh, it, it you know the therapy is to support folks who have um, a, a lot of like black and white thinking that in, in turn terms turns into like kind of 
you know, that that thinking becomes a, a way in which their emotions manifest. So um, very much kind of large emotional swings and um, low uh, distress tolerance and things of that nature. Um, and traditionally, DBT was, you know, really the way that it was written and created, it mostly was unintentionally, it, it created this atmosphere that it was a thing for white women. Um, and and that was a challenge because that's a very small population in terms of all the people in the world and the people who need support. Um, so, you know, folks started to adapt in a lot of different ways and uh, Stella's Place, we decided to try to adapt it as well. And, um, and you know, the adaptation for us was how do we make this accessible uh, to BIPOC folks um, from all over the world? Uh, you know, folks, you know, be, yeah, from all over the world and be, because it's the representation piece, representation piece is important too, but you know, representation isn't just the facilitator. Representation is, you know, how it's written and the language that's used and the examples in the material and those kinds of things. And I could speak for myself, like when I was in school, sometimes I'd like read the textbooks and they use examples that I literally didn't know what the heck they meant because I'm like, this is not my culture in my life. I just, I I just I, it didn't click with me. It just wouldn't work, right? And, you know, I'm talking about, like, English literature, but, you know, if we're talking about supporting someone's health, um, which, you know, the stakes are higher than English literature, um, it's important that the material is something that people can connect with, right? So we've done a lot of work in terms of adapting the material in such a way that it doesn't exclude people, but it brings them in instead. And, um, you know, the initial reviews, because we've, we've only, this is still a pretty recent development for it, for us, but the initial reviews uh, are, are good. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely be doing a lot more of the BIPOC DBT stuff. Um, another thing that we're going to be starting out is um, a, a BIPOC uh, support group, um, you know, because I think that a lot of folks uh, who, who are not white experience sometimes in the system is going to support groups and being, you know, one of the only folks there who is like maybe from Pakistan or, or, or China or, or, you know, South America or, or, you know, wherever. Right. So, um, and, and, you know, so the idea is to create more spaces uh, for folks to be able to bring their complete selves in without feeling like someone might judge them. And, and, and I know that that can sound, you know, you know, that can sound sometimes like, oh, white people are bad or anything like that. And that's not what it is, right? It's it's more about just having that that comfort of of just that that safety level because I mean sometimes it's just, you know, one bad experience can color your entire, you know, perception of a certain thing or certain environment, right? So um, being able to create uh, environments that are safe. Um, are, are really important and uh, just, you know, I, I think we're really invested in doing that. And, you know, of course, the big thing that I work on is called the Community Healing Project. Um, and that is, you know, supporting folks from communities where there's a high experience of violence. And, you know, in Toronto, those communities are largely, you know, not a lot of white folks in those communities, right? So, um, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of support that we are offering uh, in, in terms of trying to support, you know, the diversity that lives within our city. And, and I think that we're doing a pretty good job of that. But I think we could, you know, we, there's so much more room for us to grow as well 
you know, of course. So, you know, it's a situation where it's like you're proud of, you know, what you got and where you are, but you also can see that, you know, you're, you're, there's so much, like, so much farther you can go. It's, it's like, to use a sports analogy, it's like being in the playoffs and, you know, it's like, you know, you got four rounds to get through to get the trophy and you got through the second round. So you feel nice that, you know, you got through that part of the playoffs, but, you know, you still got some more games to play to, to get to the trophy. Absolutely. Proud, proud, but never satisfied. Um, exactly. Exactly. I so. mean, all, all those resources you named off sounds so incredible. And the, the dialectical behavioral behavior therapy sounds so cool. Cause I've, I've heard and read about people using cognitive behavioral therapy and the success that that has. So that, that's just for me personally, I've never encountered that even just theoretically. So that sounds incredible. And oh, you, so sick. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm as soon as we're done here, I'm definitely doing some Googling, but you, you mentioned in, in your response about helping people all around the world and, you know, going through this pandemic, one of the, you know, I, I hesitate in even saying silver linings, but you know, we're having this interview right now through zoom, the, the yeah. prominence, the prevalence of being able to do things virtually for good and for bad has made things more accessible. And one of the resources at Stella's place that we mentioned off the top that specifically our campaign is, is directing the funds towards is the, is the virtual counseling. Yeah. Do you, how important. And you know, in, in a lot of these conversations, we try and steer away from the pandemic just cause it's like, Oh, it's, it's the, it's the elephant in the room, but it's just, it's been here for so long that, but in this current climate we're living in, having resources like free or accessible virtual counseling how important do you think do you find that that is it's a game changer um it's it's a game changer uh you know mental health has obviously worsened over the last couple of years um for everybody uh you know that impact has been a little bit stronger for young people which obviously makes sense because you know for me it's like i'm in my 30s you know, I had like my, I had my twenties experiences, my teenage experiences, that kind of thing. And I think about what if you're like, there are kids right now who start a university in 2019 and essentially you've had half a semester of like that experience of being a student for real, for real. Um, and they're never going to get that time back. So it's not just, you know, you're not getting to hang out with your friends. It's that realization that there is this chunk of your life that is a formative and important part of your life that you're not going to get back. And that's really hard, you know? Um, so to, to be able to support young people through, you know, those things and others is integral uh, at this point and, and, you know, just, I'm really proud that we've been able to do that as well as, as well as we have, you know, I remember back in March of 2020, you know, it was, you know, we're going into the March break weekend and Doug Ford was telling us all to take vacations and, you know, we didn't really know what we were in for. Right. And then we came back on Monday and everything was shut down. You know, I'm really proud that for Stella's place, we did not wait to pivot. It was immediately. Okay. We're moving everything online virtual and within two weeks we were up and ready to go virtually and i'm not saying this to brag and i don't know i haven't fact checked what i'm about to say but i do believe in terms of what i've seen in the landscape of mental health in toronto 
that we were the only and the first organization to respond that quickly. There was, you know, at that point, you know, a lot of people felt like, oh, this coronavirus thing, it's going to be gone by June, you know, then we'll get back to normal life. So they didn't really like fully invest into making, you know, their offerings online. Even though we had the feeling that maybe this thing doesn't last that long, but we also had the feeling that maybe it does. So we fully invested into the online stuff immediately. And, um, you know, there wasn't a tremendous drop off in terms of our ability to support the folks who were accessing counseling. And, and now that we've seen the success of that, you know, virtual counseling might be a thing that's around forever. So um, it's, it's really important. And I mean, obviously the pandemic has highlighted its importance um, just because it's, we can't go to the same physical spaces uh, with the same level of flexibility as before. But at the same time, you know, and then again, this is me thinking back to like 15 year old me who, whose anxiety was so strong, I couldn't leave the house at 15 years old. There's so many young people and people in general, but you know, we serve young people. There's so many young people for whom that's their experience is that they can't get out of bed. They can't get out of the room. They can't get out of the basement. They can't get out of the house but they want help, right? So then, you know, typically what ends up happening there is then you start, start scouring social media and internet, trying to figure things out. And, you know, you might find some helpful stuff, but it's probably not going to be the turning point for you in your life, right? I just sound like Dr. Phil when I said that. <laughs> but, 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 but anyway, um, so to have access, you know, to a counselor virtually, could be that game changer and that turning point. And so for us to be able to offer that, man, I'm so proud of it. I'm, I'm really proud of it. I, I probably do actually just brag about it all the time. It is what it is, you know, <laughs> but um, it's definitely something worth bragging about, I think. And, and our counselors are honestly, they're amazing, amazing people. I just actually uh, sat down with them last week and we kind of did a little training together. Um, and the conversations that we had were just so incredible. And like I always had so much respect for them, but now it's just through the roof. Um, so just, I'm, I'm so proud of what we got going on. Well, and it's, it's something to be proud about, something to be loud about it. That it's incredible. And the great thing about virtual is that it maybe has a bit of a connotation with the pandemic for so many people, but at, as you were mentioning, it's not going to go anywhere. Cause even if things return to whatever normal means, it's just an option that people can access, you know, it's just, it makes things more accessible even when we don't have to use it. Uh, exactly. Asante, last thing I want to touch on, yeah. kind of going for full circle here. You know, we started talking about your own journey being a teenager and dealing with everything you were. So let's say that you're, you're 16 years old again, but it's, you know, it's here in 2020 and you're trying to access this virtual counseling for you or for anyone trying to access it, what are the, what's the process? Like, what are the steps to be able to get a session? Yeah. I mean, you know, you're going to want to, you know, you could email connect at stellasplace.ca. That's one way. Um, you could, you know, go to our website, stellasplace.ca and, you know, uh, our contact information is there in terms of our phone number call. Um, we have, again, just some of the nicest people, uh, just as, as our access team. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll hook you up, man. And, you know, and the turnover is, it's, it's our, our, we've done a really good job over the past several months in terms of 
um, doing some things to make the process a little bit quicker. Um, obviously not promising immediate support, um, but definitely quicker than it, it would have been a year ago um, and probably quicker than a lot of the alternatives. So um, I do encourage people to reach out again, you know, connect at stellasplace.ca um, or to the website stellasplace.ca and there you'll find our phone number and you can call us as well. Um, we're also on, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, as uh, I think at Stella's Place, I believe it is. I mean, throw Stella's Place into the search. I mean, who else is Stella's Place, right? It's just us. Um, so um, there are multiple ways to get in touch with us and we'll definitely try our best to get you connected and, you know, see you as quickly as we can. That's incredible, Asante. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today, telling us about all the incredible things Stella's Place is doing and uh, let's hope to uh, get more people connected with Stella's Place and using those incredible resources that you have available. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. I, I really enjoyed it. All the best. You too. <laughs>